Good morning. I don't know about you, but as I sing with you, I am encouraged that uh, we are worshiping a Lord who is alive and well and at work. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy again, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you're using the Bibles here, uh, page 963. And if you're joining us online, thank you so much. It's good to have you a part of this service as well. As we've been studying in 1 Timothy for a while, I guess, it's generally been the Apostle Paul who has been coaching his younger partner in ministry, Timothy, who is now leading the church in Ephesus. It's first century, and Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus, and Paul is giving him instructions to address the false teachers, to... uh, handle certain situations this way, and here's how to elect or choose leaders that are qualified in the church. So he's been coaching Timothy about the church. This paragraph is different. In this paragraph, Paul is coaching Timothy about Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, no matter how far along you are spiritually, and Timothy was a mature, though younger, pastor, however far along you are, There are things that you need to work on spiritually and be careful of spiritually so that you stay on track your whole life. And the key will be is if you have an eternal perspective that for the rest of your life from here till the end of your life, you are living because in a sense that you know that you live forever and that you will have heaven's priorities on earth. So focus on the things that will matter when you look back from heaven's view. So Paul first tells Timothy something to run from and then something to chase. Verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You, man of God, it's as if he's pointing a finger. I'm not talking about the church, Timothy. I'm talking about you. You're a man of God. And then he says, flee these things. So it's like a compliment paired with a warning. That's really what we need so much of the time. When I I think about the people I know well throughout the church family here, you want to be a man of God. You want to be a woman of God. There's a sincerity to your heart. And so God would affirm us, but then he would also warn us and say, there's some things you need to flee, and the only way you can flee them is if you run towards or chase something very different. So what is it that Timothy must flee? You, man of God, flee from all of this or these things. There's a very specific reference. Grammatically, he's looking at the previous paragraph. This was a couple of weeks for us a couple of weeks ago for us here, but if you remember verses 6 through 10, it was a very specific subject. It says, Timothy, you need to be teaching the people to be content with what they have. Because if they are eager for money, they love money, that's what they're chasing, there is tremendous spiritual destruction ahead of them. And he says, Timothy, you too. Flee from all of this specifically. So it's a warning to us that 
If we find ourselves frequently discontent with our pay, often comparing enviously our stuff with someone else's, thinking, strategizing about wealth, shopping compulsively, we, we have to pay attention to those things no matter how far along we are spiritually. That can be a danger. And the danger is very sobering if you look back at the end of verse 10. Wandered from the faith, pierced himself with many griefs. Or verse 9, plunged men into ruin and destruction. It couldn't be more serious. It couldn't be more clear. So how do we turn off the love of money switch? You can't avoid money. We will think about money daily our whole life because we are earning it, we are spending it, we are saving it for retirement, we are making money decisions really in a sense all day long. If you, you know, a car repair, do we, how are we going to pay for it? Do we repair the car? Is it time to replace the car? What are you going to buy for lunch? You're going to bring a sandwich, you're going to drop 10 to $12 for lunch. Are you going to buy generic or best brands? Are we going to Keep the furniture that sags and it's the wrong color or buy new or buy on marketplace. I mean, this is not telling us that we should quit thinking about money. You can't stop thinking about money. But the love of money is avoidable. How? What he proposes is spiritual replacement therapy. So if you find yourself focused on the love of money and eager to get rich and all the things that we were warned about, this discontent of verses 6 through 10, you're going to have to replace it somehow. And he says, this is what you've got to do. You have to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. It's a, it's a turning of the page of our priorities. This is what matters because this is what will matter in heaven is how well did I pursue those things. Now, the love of money is only one issue. It happens to be the one in the context. So Paul, as he's writing this, focuses on that. A couple years later, the same man, Paul, was writing to the same man, Timothy, and a very, very similar thought in 2 Timothy, but here he broadens us as broadens it as we all know that money isn't the only thing that distracts us. So it's a similar verse. Flee, he tells Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And again, a compliment with a warning. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. So what are the evil desires of youth? Paul was youngish, a couple years older by the time 2 Timothy, but still probably late 20s or within his 30s at least. And so if, if you are that age or you can easily think back to that age, or if you find yourself you haven't changed much since that age, then we would recognize some of these things. Money, vanity, appearance kinds of things. It's funny, sometimes I'm at the Y and you, you see these young guys working out and they just love the mirror. Every bit as much as they might accuse women of it. Power. So what's your position at the company? 
Prestige, what do people think of you? Sex, of course. Arguments. I don't know if arguing and quarreling is, is more of a younger thing that got to make your point, you got to win your point, but all these things can distract us from what? Righteousness, faith, love, peace. So if you find yourself on the off-ramp of some of those temptations, what do you replace it with? Righteousness. Verse 11 again now. Righteousness and godliness. Do I consciously live to please God? Or is my default either what pleases me or what could I get by with? What would be okay? Faith. Do I trust God about circumstances now like I trust him for eternal life? Maybe that's settled for you. But can you trust him with the circumstances now? Love. Do I have a mindset of sacrifice? This is, this is the agape love, the self-sacrificing Christ-like love. Do I, have a, do I have a mindset, I think about others, of sacrifice, service, and being intentionally selfless? Is this, the way I, is this how I think about my spouse or marriage? Is this how I think about even my coworker or neighbor? Endurance. Do I give up spiritually when God doesn't seem to bless me for trying? That's his concern for, for Timothy. He's done well, but will I give up when at some point it seems like I am trying to obey God and it, it's not paying off, which reveals our motive, right? And so it excuses selfishness or sin because it's not working out. Gentleness. Do I treat people gently because I humbly know I'm in need of constant grace myself? Or do I take on a different persona how I treat others? Like... You deserve justice. I, I want grace, but you deserve justice. This is, this is a totally unnatural list. Without, apart from God's help and the Holy Spirit, that is not any of us. But if we understand the importance of it and know that that is the life on the table to pursue, then what Paul says to Timothy, the rest of this paragraph makes perfect sense because he's going to motivate him to this radical life for an obvious reason. Life is short and heaven is long. And how we live here, between here and the end of life, will in some important way determine our joy in the glory of God forever. So fight, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you, Timothy, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. He's saying, fight for Heaven's priorities, eternal values, your whole life until Christ comes back. First phrase of verse 12 there of, comes from the battle. Either the, the fight is either the battlefield or, or the athletic arena. Either way, it's legitimate fighting. This isn't about street fights or bar fights. The, this is a legitimate fight. Fight a good fight 
that matters, that means. You fight a fight that will matter until Christ comes back. You're fighting a fight that will impact eternity, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Don't fight battles that won't matter in heaven. Do you remember Paul also in, in writing to the Ephesians gave us that great section on spiritual warfare where he says our battle is not against flesh and blood. We keep thinking people are the problem. But he says it's not. It's principalities and powers and rulers in the darkness of this world. And it's remarkable that Paul would write about that because Paul was writing from prison because of unjust Jewish authorities who had arrested him. And he ends up in, in, imprisoned in Rome where the Roman authorities basically ignoring him and let him languish in prison for over two years. In a sense, it seems like taking him away from ministry, but yet he writes these prison epistles. It's, and yet his focus is not on what people have done to him unjustly, but rather it's on... So we need the belt of truth, and we need the shield of faith, and we need our feet shod with the gospel of peace and keep sharing the gospel, and we need the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word, and we need to pray in the Spirit... It's the same thing he's been saying everywhere else. That is the good fight. That is the spiritual struggle we are in. So take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession that many people saw. Let's start with the good confession. Disputed a little bit which confession this is, but it's something that Timothy had proclaimed publicly. Some have thought it's maybe a reference to his ordination. Chapter 4, verse 14, we talked about that, where the people, where the elders laid their hands on him for kind of like official ministry. Could be that. I think it actually makes a little more sense that this is going a rewind all the way back to when he was saved and baptized. In other words, he became a public believer. That's the only kind there was in the book of Acts. That's, in fact, why it was always saved and baptized. You look, look, read through the book of Acts, and there wasn't this long delay between salvation and baptism, water baptism. I, I, I kind of get it because the, today in our culture, this seems so unusual to be dipped in water kind of a thing, and it wasn't so unusual. That meant you were identifying with something. But, but the public confession was simply, I am, I've put my faith in Christ, and I'm declaring publicly I am following Christ. I will dare to be different. So it's a, it's a strong public intention. And Paul says, Timothy, you, as you look forward, you always have to think backwards to what you in, in great sincerity intended from day one. So take hold. Be committed to the eternal life that started here. Because our eternal life starts when we believe in Christ. It doesn't just start when we die and go to heaven. It started there, and it continues all the way. So he says, knowing that life is short and eternity is long, while we're living in this life and have choices to make, live the values that will matter when we are in heaven. It's been the way Paul has always written and preached. The long view of life, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You're getting this heavenly image Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, dear people at Colossae or Philippi. Referring to those whose destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. That's our culture, right? 
Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We think entirely different because we know where home is, and it's not here. Life is short, and heaven is long. Live for what matters forever. I don't know if any of you can identify with some of the dreams I had for several decades after I finished schooling. But I had, I occasionally would have this dream where I walked into a classroom and found out there was a test that I had not prepared for. Anybody else? <laughs> and for some reason, that just, that just woke me up worse than monsters or anything else. This, I walked into this classroom, I had no idea what was on this, what was going to do on this test. Life is not a dream, but there is a test. And there'll be a time that we would say, I wish I'd prepared. I wish I'd understood what was most important. And so we have the word of God to urge us to say, this is the most important. In, in my college dorm years, I could always find someone who wanted to goof off instead of study. They're, they're always available to go out to pizza, drive someplace, play a game or something. Not necessarily even bad things. But it's not why we paid tuition and moved 300 miles from home. I needed to take hold of the reason for which I went to college. And then during seminary years, the stakes were even higher because I knew the career specifically that I was pursuing. And dorm life was over and we were married. But, uh, so there wasn't a bunch of goof-offs tempting me. But I remember one temptation was no one knows or cares if I skip class. And that's a boring class. But the, what, what I used to motivate myself is I, I tallied up what does a semester's tuition cost that Priscilla and I were working so hard to, to pay for? What's the tuition for a semester? How many class sessions are there? And to do the math. And I found out what each class cost. And I said, I don't want to waste that money. That's just me. And something about this has to help prepare me for my whole career. God saved you so that you would spend your whole eternity with him, not just here to death. Christ paid the full tuition, so that's taken care of. But how many classes do you want to skip? Going back to verse 11. You want to skip the righteousness class? So that you know, we can indulge in more pleasures with people that seem to be having more fun? Do we want to skip the sacrificial Christ love class? So we can be kind of self-absorbed and everything kind of runs through that it's all about me filter. Would we ignore the class on gentleness and thus ignore some of the hurts that we might be causing that the Spirit prompts us about? Who are we kidding to think that that, that what what we do here doesn't matter once we get our ticket to heaven. We live fully accountable to God, which is where Paul goes next in verse 13. It's a long sentence, but it starts with, in the sight of God who gives light to everything, and of Jesus Christ, I give you this command. Timothy, Paul says, we are are living in full view of the Father and the Son, the Creator and our Savior, 
with whom we will spend eternity. We, we live right now in view of the same magnificent, glorious God that we will be forever with. So I give you this command in that, in that sense. God who gives life to everything. Referring to his creator role, but probably implying Timothy, Paul, Timothy, God made you and created you for a purpose. Much like he said to the Ephesians, after saying that we're not saved by works, Paul made clear, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God created you spiritually, saved you, because he had a plan in mind. It's like, I mean, that reads almost like God has a, has a checklist and boxes to check. I've prepared some good works for you. So how is that working? We should be honored that he created us with eternal things to accomplish. It's a privilege. And yet it's a accountable privilege. Yesterday I was doing something in the garage and my four-year-old grandson was with me. I was drilling some holes to attach something to a piece of furniture and I was trying to think, what could he do? Ah. So I found something for him to do and he was holding the drill and, and, and don't tell him, but he thinks he completely drilled these holes all by himself. <laughs> of course I controlled it. I invited him to be a part of it. But he got the joy of being a part of it. And that's really how it is when we work and serve Christ. He, he accomplishes anything of value. But he does let us help. And we have a role. So we should be so honored. So in the sight of God, who created you and gave you these purposes, and in the sight of Christ Jesus, who it says, while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Kind of interesting, because he's just said how Timothy made the good confession. So Timothy's was a public declaration acknowledging who he was as a believer. He was baptized saying, I am a Christian and intend to live like a Christian. There's only one place this can refer to. It's when Matthew 27, 11, it's also in, I think, John. But they said, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it, or you have said so. In other words, acknowledging, yes, I am. Now, Pontius Pilate didn't fully understand it, but Jesus went public. So, so Timothy, you went public as a follower of Christ, so therefore, and fi finally in verse 14, now we know what he's all about. Keep this command. Keep this command, or put it at the front of the sentence too. Keep the command without spot or blame until Christ comes back. Referring to the rapture, Christ is coming back, so you may not even have until the day of your death. If you think you can, you know, put that off with good medicine and good health and all that, but, but you may not have till then. You only have until Christ comes back, and only God knows when that is, so it could be tomorrow, could be today. It could be 20, 30 years, but for the rest of your life, you need to keep the command. The command is not stated here exactly what command that is. It could be Back to verse 11, pursuing righteousness, godliness, and, and fleeing anything that distracts you. It could be the whole, the whole 
book, in a sense, that would apply to Timothy or anything or everything, but it's, it's basically, but it is to live your life in a way that'll matter forever. Make sure you keep it consistently without spot or unstained is the word, or blameless or free from reproach. So by adding that, he's saying it's not just like generally you're pretty good. Stains are very specific things. You can have a very clean garment in one spot makes you not wear it. So you kind of picture yourself in a laundry room, if you will, of working on your most treasured garment because there's a couple of stains on it and, and you just keep on scrubbing or you keep seeking solutions until the stain is removed. He says, Timothy, you've got to think about your life that way. You could think about all the clean areas if you want to, but no one doing laundry does that. Because if you want a clean garment, you want a clean garment. So you wouldn't leave the house with a stained shirt and you, because you're too lazy to wash the stain. You wouldn't want to leave earth without addressing any stain that God exposes in your life. I know as I look at my life, there's just continually new stains he allows me to see. Attitudes I haven't addressed. Tests. Temptations. Opportunities to trust. Ways to serve. And so, and so Timothy, Paul says, you've got one life and you belong to the one who created you. You belong to the one who saved you. So will you address whatever he's bringing to your attention? And will you commit to everything from now till Christ comes back or the day you die, one way or another, we're leaving. Will you commit that, that I will ask the question, Lord, what have you assigned me to do? He's called young in this book, and so maybe this applies. The younger you are, obviously the more life you potentially have. And so to whatever you consider yourself, however you consider yourself young, I would, I would just urge you to ask that question. What does God want me to do with the rest of my life that will matter forever in heaven? A lot of the same things you're doing right now, but maybe with a different attitude or perspective or goal. See, we, we get the idea sometimes that if I, if I gave a blank check to the Lord that way, He's certainly going to make me miserable because that's our view of God. If you, if you glance ahead next week's study in, in verse 17, just the end of verse 17, God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Is that your view of God? Is he the joy killer or the joy giver? See, the way we get our whole mind, well, there's, there's a deception of the world controlled and influenced by Satan, but the way we get our minds so upside down is that we see the pleasures of the world, but we forget that the pleasures of the world always come with the side effects of sin. Whereas the only one who can give us joy without the side effects of sin is God. He is a good God and the giver of good things, as, we've, as we just sang, actually. So God is seeking that blank check of obedience 
fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life, keep the command until Christ comes back. Addressing every stain, every distraction, anything that gets in the way. So Paul has been coaching Timothy with some strong words. Coaches use strong language. Good coaches will address hard issues. Good coaches talk about mistakes in the last game. Good coaches raise their voices. And it's not necessarily anger, but it's urgency. Because it matters so much. So if you feel a little bit coached or urged today, that's a good thing. But you might be needing some encouraging motivation because good coaches do that too. And so mid-season NFL coach might point to a, to a banner or a picture of a, a Lombardi trophy. Say, this is what we're working for, guys. So, so what's the trophy? What's the goal? What's the offer that, that, that Paul is pointing Timothy to? Middle of verse 15. The trophy is God himself, who you'll spend forever with. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. So, Timothy, remember who it is we're serving. Remember who it is we'll be with forever. And what we'll be doing forever is honoring him forever. And it seems that in some way, heaven is where we participate in the glory of God in some corresponding way to how we lived for the glory of God. That it's even a greater enjoyment to be able to glorify him as we bring before him our obedience and our service and in the toughness of all that we do and face here. And that we will enjoy him forever. So do we understand the one that we are going to be with forever the one who will, will be a father to us and, 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 and love us and we will worship him perfectly. He is called the blessed and only ruler. The uh, word ruler or, or uh, sovereign or I think King James says potentate, it's the guy on the top, top, top. God is on the top of every organizational chart in the world. Some people just don't know it. But he is at the top Controls everything without any anxiety at all. Controllers typically have a lot of anxiety, not God. He controls everything with full control and peace, knowing exactly where it's going. And so he is the blessed ruler. Blessed is referring to bliss or happiness. And typically we say we're blessed because somebody has given us something. How is God blessed? God is blessed, happy within himself. He is the fount of every blessing, as our hymn says. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. So of all the kings, he's the king over those kings. And of all the lords or masters, he's the master over the masters. He's the top. He's the greatest of all time. Sports writers refer to certain athletes sometimes as the GOAT. G-O-A-T, greatest of all times. It's a way of saying that somehow their skills exceed all others. And if, and if you're the goat, then you deserve the honor. 
And that's where this list of seven or so characteristics of God takes us from the greatness of God to therefore the glory or honor that God deserves. Verse 16, who alone is immortal. Means never, never dies, never runs out of life. There is no winding down of God. Lives an unapproachable life. So, so God dwells in an unapproachable, glorious light. Describes the seemingly visual that we will have of God in heaven. But it's an unapproachable light. Scientists say that we don't actually see the sun. Now, you, there are camera pictures of the actual object, the sun, in the burning surface. But what we see is actually the past. If you look at the sun, I'm not recommending it, but if you look at the sun, what you are actually seeing is the rays that were emitted some eight or more minutes ago. But you don't see the sun. and We don't actually see God. We see the glory of God he dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Uh, this is the second time in Timothy that Paul has burst into essentially a song or a doxology. Chapter 1, verse 17, at the beginning, the front end, he did that. And he, he said something very similar of God, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever, amen. And kind of like bookends this, this, this uh, letter with this kind of, a th- there he said invisible, now he defines invisible. And that is, whom no one has seen or can see, Jesus said God is spirit. So Jesus is flesh, He is resurrected, glorified flesh, and we will indeed see Jesus in the glory of Jesus. But what is this saying about God the Father? You can't actually see his essence. We will see his glory, and we will, of course, know the Son, know him through the Son. I don't know, it's mind-boggling to me. I, I, I struggle to try to understand the nature of God himself because he is infinite and I am not. And even Paul seems flabbergasted by the nature of God. And, he, and Paul is the one who was actually transported to heaven, at least in a vision, 2 Corinthians 12, 2, 3, and 4, where he talks about how he, he saw and heard things that he can't even talk about. And yet even him with a kind of a, a, a preview of God's nature says, it's beyond me how magnificent, glorious, unapproachable, and amazing God is. So, to him be honor and might forever. What's going to matter forever is giving honor to God. And so, what should we do now? Live for what matters in heaven. Whatever that means, if whatever, whatever God speaks to us about when we're in his word, if it's fighting the good fight, what's, what's the area? Growing spiritually, trusting God, serving him, loving someone, whatever it might be. We don't have to fully understand how glorious God is to know that to live and make choices to his glory 
is what will forever matter. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. In other words, if you live for what matters in heaven, your life actually becomes rich and meaningful already. But if you live for what you think makes life happy, fun, and good here, even that will be empty. Just wait a while. Aim at heaven. You'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So whatever it costs to have heaven's priorities on earth, it's worth it. And you'll be forever grateful that you pursued what would forever matter. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so earthbound and and uh, absorbed in today's schedule and the trials of this coming week, the goals that we want to accomplish, things we want to enjoy, pains we want to avoid. We acknowledge our default is to be all about ourselves and how everything affects us. And then we are reminded each time we come to your word that you deserve the honor, the greatness forever. So, Lord, make the adjustments, whether it's a major U-turn or a small tweak of something that you spark by your spirit today. Please, Lord, just uh, give us the... uh, not only the power, but the enthusiasm that it is what matters and will always matter. In Jesus' name, amen.